Hi, this is Lisa Borders, and this is my podcast, Enlightened. I'm so glad that you decided to join me. There are two types of episodes we'll be sharing here. One is me telling my story from growing up in the civil rights era in Atlanta in the 60s to being president of the WNBA and everything in between. The other type is a conversation with a guest about an enlightening experience in their life. Today, I'll be sharing my story. If you like what you hear here today, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper conversations at lisaborders.us. I think you're going to like this story. Enjoy the episode. Please be aware that this episode contains accurate but graphic language, which is racially insensitive. I want to tell you a story about growing up in Atlanta and integrating an independent school. You might remember we didn't call it an independent school when I went to school there. We called it a private school. But how did all that happen? Here's the story. Growing up in Atlanta, I attended public schools initially. The last one I recall really vividly was Peyton Forest Elementary. It was a new school. It was on the same street where we lived. It was modern and had air conditioning and big playgrounds. And we were so excited to be one of the first families to go to this school. And I learned a lot there. And an interesting thing to know about Peyton Road is there was something called the Peyton Road Barrier built in the 1950s or 1960s. And it was literally a wall across the street. And what it did was supposedly keep black people from moving onto that street. You could not go beyond what was called the Peyton Road Barrier. So this was significant to our family because the first place my mother and father wanted to live was on Peyton Road. So the very first house they ever bought was located at 490 Peyton Road Southwest. And I ultimately went to the new school that was built on that street and it was called Peyton Forest Elementary. And I went to sixth grade there. Peyton Forest Elementary, while brand new, was one gigantic square building. And the beauty of the school, as they described it then, was that there were windows from ceiling to floor. So call it 12-foot windows that looked to the outside. There were lots of woods and greenery around the school. So it was beautiful in the sense that it was new and that it was large, but it was a square brick building with windows from ceiling to floor on the exterior walls where the classrooms were. My teachers, I remember two women, Miss Leonard and Miss Nolan, and they took no tea for the fever. Every day I would get in trouble for talking, even though I did my work. So when my mother decided to talk with my father about putting me in a more challenging place, he agreed that while Peyton Forest was a new school and it was a public school and their tax money paid for that education, it was not adequate for me. 
I remember my parents, my mother especially, saying, we've got to find a better way to challenge you. You are making great grades in your subjects, but you are disruptive and other kids can't learn. And you're going to end up not only in detention, but under the jail somewhere. And she didn't want that to happen. She decided she wanted me in a school where I couldn't just make straight A's without trying, that I really would have to apply myself. My mother, her name was Gloria, when she spoke, we called it the gospel according to Gloria. So once she decided that's what I was doing, that I would need to go to a different school where I could be challenged more and less trouble to a classroom of other students and teachers. That's what we were doing. So she talked with one of her friends who had found a new school called the Westminster Schools, and they had a son who was going to take the test for admission at this school, and her friend suggested that I do likewise. It was supposed to be a school where Academics were actually accelerated, and if you were able to master a subject, you could move ahead even faster. And so my mother decided that this would be a good opportunity to channel all this energy that I was using to talk and be disruptive to learn more and move faster and graduate earlier, perhaps. So here we go to the private school. What I didn't know perhaps my mother understood, was that this was an all-white school. There were seven African-American students there before I came, and they had just come the year before. It started in the fall of 1969, and I was student of color number eight. Hold that thought. That number is still my lucky number today. So the new school... The Westminster schools is where they thought I should be and where I would be challenged. Now, the Westminster schools was a very different place from anything that I had ever experienced and perhaps that my parents had ever experienced either. It had a campus. I'm not even sure I knew what to call it at the time, but you drive onto this space and it has this long, wide driveway as if you are going up to some company as opposed to a schoolhouse. It was K through 12, kindergarten through 12th grade. Not only was it on a campus, the campus was 180 acres. I didn't know what that meant, but my mother understood it. My father understood it, that this was an enormous place and that you could go to school here from kindergarten through 12th grade. There were three more children in my family. I have three siblings and two cousins. They all would come to this school as well, but I was the first. I was the oldest of all of us, and... I was the one who got the D in conduct, so I became the one to go first and see if this was an academically more challenging place 
When you drive in, there are two large iron gates that must open so that you can come onto the campus. So it said to me they could close those gates and keep people out or open the gates and let people in. As you drive onto the campus, there were tennis courts if you looked to the right. And I had only seen tennis courts once in my life, but never had I seen them so large and so many as right to the right of the entrance of this school. But as you drive past the tennis courts, you continue down this wide driveway over a bridge that had what looked like a river running underneath it. In retrospect, it was a creek, but it looked like a river to me at 12 years old. You drove up this extremely steep hill, and what I could see at the top of that hill were many brick buildings. There was one to the right, there was one straight ahead, there was one to the left, and all of them looked huge to me. At the crest of the hill, there was a parking lot to the left, which is where the teachers parked, and we parked along the walkway behind the first building. As it turned out, That building was what was called the girls' school because girls and boys were separated after elementary school and you started junior high school. I didn't understand that part either until I drove up on the campus with my mother and had to enter a classroom to take the entrance exam. It was scary in the sense that this was a huge place, a big building. It looked like a college or something I had never seen before. But probably what was even more intimidating was that every student in the classroom was white. They happened to be all girls. I didn't understand at the time there was a girls' school and a boys' school on that campus, But I did understand that none of those students look like me. But probably what was the most challenging is that as soon as I came to the doorway and took a step into the classroom, one of the students said, oh man, there's a nigger at the door. At 12 years old, I had heard that word before but never directed at me. That racial slur was something I have ultimately heard a lot in my life, but that was the first time I think it went straight to the heart for me, personally. My mother, her hand against my back, ushered me into the room and into a seat, And her message to me was, do your best. I love you. And she left because she had to. And so the teacher handed out the paper and the pencils and gave us instructions on what we were supposed to do. And we were supposed to read the questions and answer them in a certain amount of time. And I remember feeling like this was going on forever 
and that people were staring at me. I could feel their eyes in the back of my head, looking at my legs, my clothes, and they didn't seem to be approving or nodding their heads that they liked my dress or my shoes or how I looked. I got the distinct impression that they didn't want me there. I don't know how I knew that, but that's what I felt. Well, I passed the test. My parents got that news, and they were elated because that meant I could go to the new school, the one where academics was supposed to be very rigorous and would hopefully be very challenging for me, and that I could get a firm foundation for what I needed to learn to navigate life. I didn't understand that at 12 years old. All I knew was I was leaving all my friends, I was leaving my neighborhood, that I had to get up an extra hour early to get dressed so that my mom could drive us to the school because it was very far away. And she was willing to do it, and I was being told to do it, that it was in my best interest to go to this school and learn these academics and not be disruptive because that would be ultimately helpful to me. It was a weird day that day. It was painful. It was uncomfortable. It was intimidating. And at the end of the day, I think it was just downright stressful. Not sure I could spell stress at the time, but that's what it was tantamount to. That day was the first of many at that school. I started in seventh grade in 1969. The racial slur that I was called on that very first day taking my exam to enter the school was one that I heard every single day in some shape, form, or fashion from a student or someone who worked at the school. And it was always directed at me or one of the seven other black students who were on the campus. It wasn't fun by any stretch of the imagination. Remember, this is 1969. It was a tough time for Atlanta, perhaps for the entire country. Civil rights laws had been passed and it was illegal to discriminate. But what I realized at that time is these people didn't care whether laws had been passed or whatever was going on in the country. This was their school, and I was an outsider, and it was incredibly lonely. My parents didn't want to hear about loneliness. They wanted to hear about academics, period, full stop. And so I was encouraged to ignore what people were saying to me and just study. And I can remember telling my parents and my mother most specifically, I don't want to go to school here anymore. These people don't like me. They're mean to me. There's no one here for me to date. I can remember my mother looking straight at me and saying, 
you're not there to date. You're not there to make friends. You got your whole life to date and your whole life to determine who are going to be your friends. You are there for your education and you need to stay focused on the priority and on the goal. Wow, I thought that was pretty harsh. She's not even listening to me. She doesn't care what I feel. She doesn't care about what I'm going through. In retrospect, 50 years later, she cared more than I could ever imagine. She knew the world in which I would work and live and play and pray and bring up my own family was a world that you needed to be prepared to navigate and negotiate. And to do that, I needed to have a great academic foundation. What perhaps she didn't count on, and I know I didn't count on, was that people calling me names and not including me really helped set the tenor and the tone for who I am today. But more importantly, it set a moral compass and a strength of internal fortitude that said, I can do whatever I need to do if I stay focused on the priority, focused on the goal and ignore the noise that's outside of where my attention needs to be. That everyone's approval is not what's being sought. What's being sought is the mission at hand. In high school, that was a high school diploma so that I could go on to college with a firm foundation and solid beginnings to my lifelong learning journey. I didn't understand that at 12 years old. But my mother did. And I do now. I enjoyed many of my studies. And I achieved academically. I made the honor roll. I received awards for performing at a high level. In 11th grade, I can remember receiving something called the Isabel Outler Cup for high performance at the school. And I thought that was remarkable since I really didn't have a lot of friends. And in high school, you were really interested in fitting in. I'm not sure I really understood that education was paramount above everything. That so I'm grateful for the education and honestly for the experiential education as well. As jagged and as harsh and as painful as it might have been, I endured it. We all persevered and I made it through to the other side. Graduating from that school in 1975 and ultimately being accepted early admission to my first and only choice for college, Duke University. So in retrospect, adversity was a great teacher for then and for now. There were times of success at Westminster outside of academics and making good grades. There were not a lot of them, but there were highlights. 
that I remember fondly. I can remember the first time going into the cafeteria, which looked like a ballroom in a hotel. It was very large. It was wide and deep. The people serving the food were black, like me. And I remember they were always very kind. They always were smiling and nodding their head and giving me my food and smiling. And it was almost like they were talking to me without verbalizing anything, but that they were proud that I was there along with a few other black students. While I was the first in my family of six, my siblings and my cousins, there were seven other black students who were there before me, including three or four boarding students, because we also had dormitories for boys and girls. It had started out as a boarding school. So there were two black girls in the in the dorm, one from Texas and one from Mississippi, and there were two guys in the dorm, and I think they were both from Texas, if I remember correctly. But the point is, there were just a handful of us, and any time we saw each other on this vast campus, we were always checking in, asking, did any of us need anything, or were we okay, or what time could we eat lunch? Because when we ate lunch, that was a time when most of us would be together, and we could all sit together and have some comfort in knowing that the other black kids were going to be there for us, even if it were for only 45 minutes. So as beautiful as the place was, as large as the place was, as well kept as the place was, it felt cold to me because there were not many people like me. And those that were there, I only got to interact with on a limited amount of time. I once decided to try out for the cheerleading squad. While I didn't like to play sports personally, I loved sports. I loved watching sports. I loved being an enthusiastic participant from afar with our football team or basketball team or whatever game was being played, soccer, baseball. And so I decided that the way that I could engage more fully, the way that I could participate was to be a cheerleader, that that would put me even closer than a traditional spectator without having to be on the field of play. So I remember thinking, There is some athleticism required. There is some skill here, but I can figure out how to do a split or how to jump and do a certain gesture in the air, something called a C-jump, where you really stretched your abdomen and bent backwards and had your heads touch your toes. It was a crazy stunt, but it was doable if you practiced it. And so I began to practice C-jumps and thinking, 
geez, I need to work out a little more because I'm not nearly as flexible or as nimble as I need to be. But I kept doing it every day, every day, every day. And I could see that something they call tryouts for cheerleading was coming up in the spring of that year. And I thought, hmm, I got a few months, but if I practice the C-jump and all the other different calisthenics, and if I learn the cheers, I should be able to make this team. And surely if I show that I can do the stunts and I can sing the chants and do the cheers, I'll get elected to this group. So I continued to practice on my own, and as the spring came around and there were actual posters up about cheerleading tryouts and when there would be practices. So if you wanted to try out, you could learn the cheers and the chants and the calisthenics. I signed up. Nobody said anything, so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go to the practice and do my best. So I started going to the practices And I tried to line up like everybody else and learn the cheers and learn the chants and do the calisthenics. But no one would help me. No one would stand beside me. They would all stand on the other side of the room or behind me or in front of me. And so I'd always be standing by myself. And what I realized is that some of them The other girls who were there to practice, they seemingly already knew the cheers and they already knew the calisthenics and I was just learning. So I just kept going. I had no other choice. I could have quit, but then my mother would have been really mad that I started something and didn't finish it. So I kept going. At the end of the first week, there was one student. Her name was Elaine LaCroix. And I think she was the co-captain of the team at the time. She was a year or two older than me. So she was already on the squad, but I think she was a co-captain. And after that last session of the first week, she said to me, I'm going to teach you how to do these cheers because you're not doing them right. And if you don't do them right, you're never going to make the squad. You got to jump higher. You got to point your toes. You got to bend your back more curved. And I said, but Elaine, I'm doing my best. And she said, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. You're not going to make it. I'll teach you, is what she said. And I was like, well, when are we going to do that? Practice is over. And she said, well, it's over for today. But you're going to come to my house every day after practice, and I'm going to teach you. I live close by. I can drive you or you can come however you want to come over, and I'll teach you. I said, okay, sounds good. So we left practice that day. But the next time practice came around, nobody would practice with me. But after practice, just as Elaine had said, we went to her house, and we went to her house every day 
after practice for the rest of that season. And Elaine taught me how high I needed to jump, when I needed to point my toes, how much I needed to stretch to do a split, what exercises I could do to make my body more agile. And she was amazing. Her mother was very welcoming in their home. She didn't look at me or call me a name or tell me I couldn't come through the front door or any of the other things that I had experienced at other times at the school with other students. She offered me food while I was there. And while that seems like such a minor thing, no one else had ever done it. We would go downstairs and Elaine would turn on the music and we would exercise and we would jump and she would critique me and She'd stand behind me and say, well, your back's not straight, or your arm wasn't this way, or your toes weren't pointed. She was a taskmaster. But by the end of those practices, I could jump as high as anybody. I pointed my toes. I could do my C jumps. I could do everything that you were supposed to do. Fast forward to the actual tryouts. Everybody was really nervous. There's a panel of teachers who get to judge whether you make the squad or not. And I remember there were at least three of them. There might have been more, but there were at least three of them, and each person had to go up individually and do whatever they told you to do, whether it was a jump or a particular cheer or whatever. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, this is so scary. But I've been by myself the whole time in practice, except when I was at Elaine's house. And even at Elaine's house, it was just Elaine. But because I had been by myself, I was like, okay, this is just like it's always been. No different. So I'm not going to look at them. I'm going to look at Elaine. And I'm going to think about all the things that she told me to do, smile big, stand up straight, hands on your hips, point your toes. And so those are the things I did with every request to say a cheer or do a jump or do some type of flip that I would think of what Elaine told me and think about her smiling at me or her mother's giving me food that they were nice to me and not really look at the faces of the people who were on the panel because that was too intimidating. They didn't look like they wanted me there. They were not smiling. And I don't know if that was personal or if they were just being poker face for everybody. But as a high school student, a young teenager, I thought it was directed at me. So I thought about Elaine and how helpful she was and what she told me to do. And my job was to stay focused on doing exactly what she had taught me to do. And that's what I did. And ultimately, when the names came out of who made the squad, my name was on the list. And I was so grateful So grateful to Elaine and her family for being so kind 
and for helping me when nobody else would do it. It was a marked achievement. A marked achievement. And some folks might think that being a cheerleader is not a big deal. But the process was certainly a big deal. And being selected when the appearance was that you were not part of the group, being selected to be part of the group, in my mind, was monumental. A lesson well learned for the future about kindness, about going the extra mile, about persevering, and ultimately overcoming whatever the bias was or the preconceived notion of who I was or what my capabilities were. It was special. And I'll be forever grateful to Elaine and the LaCroix family. Thank you for sharing this very intimate space as Lisa reveals this very deep story and relives this trauma. We appreciate you being here. And we're just going to take a little moment right now to pause and reflect on everything we've heard so that we can process and integrate. We invite you to take a few deep breaths down to your belly and just feel. There's a little bit more of this story of integrating Westminster to share. So now we're going to get back to the episode. Thank you for being here. I also was elected president of my junior class. And I'm not exactly sure how that happened, although we had a campaign and I made a speech and I got the most votes. 
We raised a lot of money for the junior-senior prom. That was our primary responsibility as juniors, was to honor the seniors. So it was the first time I had tried to build consensus among people and raise money and do something service-oriented. Fast forward to my senior year. I also ran for president of my senior class. And interestingly enough, I had several of my classmates tell me, it was okay for you to be junior class president, but you can't be senior class president. The senior class president has the responsibility of speaking for the class at graduation, and you cannot speak for us. You are not one of us. It was a harsh reminder that no matter how hard I worked, no matter what I achieved, there did not appear to be acceptance into the broader group. So while I was able to be a cheerleader or make the honor roll or raise money in support of junior, senior, I was not in the final analysis able to stand in front of an entire audience, parents and students and families alike, and represent the senior class. And so I lost that election. So the junior class president was the first election I ever won, and the senior class president was the first election I ever lost. The time at Westminster was academically challenging and rewarding at the same time, but the social experience was very uncomfortable. And when I left Westminster and went on to college, I made a decision that I would not go back to the school, at least not for reunions. And in fact, I never have. So in 44 years, I have never attended a reunion. What I did do was serve on the board of trustees. When I was asked to be a part of the board, which is the governance organization for the school, I actually jumped at the chance. Now you might ask, you didn't have a great experience. Why would you do that? Westminster afforded me a solid educational background solid academics in high school and an opportunity to go to one of the best colleges in the nation in Duke University. The social piece was not absolutely necessary at that time. But as a trustee, I realized I would have the opportunity to guide the policy of the school, but actually the programming at the school. And perhaps as a governance person, part of the governing body, I could ensure that no other student of color or of any different ethnicity or religious background would have to endure what I and my siblings even endured at Westminster. And so I became a trustee and I served for 25 years, an entire generation And I think I still stand today as one of the longest serving trustees in the history of the school. So while I didn't go back to my individual reunions, I actually served the school, I think, in a deeper and broader capacity. I always wrote checks to the annual fund, so I contributed financially. 
But more importantly, I think I helped become the moral compass for the school. A person who could help the board and the faculty and the families think more broadly than their own biological or geographically defined bubble. It's a hard thing to be an outsider, but oftentimes you bring a perspective that others don't fully appreciate until you enlighten them. So rather than be bitter about what happened socially, I decided to try and be better and offer some insight from someone who actually went through the experience and felt the pain that it inflicted, but also who benefited from the academic rigor that the school offered. So I sit as a proud graduate in the class of 1975, as a parent of my son in the class of 2000, he was the first minority legacy in the history of the school. And also as a former trustee who served for an entire generation, trying to make sure that the school was not just good academically, but that emotionally and psychologically that they support all of the students who are there. All right, everyone, that was this week's episode of Enlightened. I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week.